Women's Health Melbourne is an innovative, holistic fertility and women's health practice. We are world leaders in IVF and egg freezing and provide our patients with every opportunity to achieve their goals. Our hand-picked expert team provides the ultimate care experience for our patients. Reach us at womenshealthmelbourne.com.au and follow us at Women's Health Melbourne and at Dr Rayleigh Alou. And welcome to Knocked Up, the podcast about fertility and women's health. You are joined, as always, by me, Geordie Morrison, and Dr. Rayleigh Alou, CREI Fertility Specialist. This episode is about early pregnancy bleeding. How common is it, and what does it mean? Rayleigh, this was your idea, this topic. What made you think we should discuss early pregnancy bleeding? Look, I was inspired to do this podcast when last week I had a patient present to emergency in the middle of the night, obviously extremely distressed with some early pregnancy bleeding. And I just thought, you know what, this is such a common problem. It happens in at least 25% of all pregnancies that a woman will experience some bleeding. And it's something we've never talked about on Knocked Up. I think it's something that Many women listening here will, if they haven't already, will one day experience. And it is very scary. So I thought we should maybe dive into it a little bit and at least have this podcast out there as a resource for anyone who, if they experience some bleeding in the middle of the night, have some professional advice, albeit in general form, to have as a real reliable resource. What causes... Or what is the general cause of early pregnancy bleeding? Well, that's the thing, Geordie. There's not one particular cause and there are different time points of bleeding and in different contexts, it can mean different things. But I guess the take-home message is that some pregnancies that are completely normal, a woman will experience some bleeding and it doesn't necessarily mean that the pregnancy is in danger or the end of the pregnancy is a confirmed fact. What women worry about when they have bleeding is is the worry of a miscarriage or the worry of a loss that may not be inevitable and can we do anything about it. I think one firstly important thing to talk about is implantation bleeding, particularly in an IVF context or assisted reproductive medicine context because one thing we do in assisted reproductive medicine is we monitor very, very closely at a much earlier stage than women might worry about if they are naturally trying to conceive. So we look at the timing of ovulation. When we do an embryo transfer, it's five days after ovulation. And from that time point onwards, a woman is expecting to be pregnant or not pregnant and is is really focused on that. And I have countless patients who despite my advice probably not to not to do it, who do different pregnancy urine test kits from the time of an embryo transfer every single day until, you know, two weeks later when we actually know if it's worked or not. So, you know, people are very invested in their pregnancy. What has to happen when an embryo interacts with the endometrium, which is the lining of the womb, is it has to oppose and it has to invade and it has to implant. 
And what that means is the outer layer of the embryo has to become a placenta and it has to negotiate a blood supply with the maternal interface, which is called the decidua or the lining of the uterus. And it literally has to burrow its way. And this is in some ways a way that a placenta can act a bit like in the same way a cancer does. It has to establish itself where it wasn't before and it has to establish a blood supply from the mother. And that's what it has to do. And there can be a little bit of collateral damage as it's invading and establishing a maternal blood supply. And that is a very common cause of very early bleeding, often around the time of a missed period that can sometimes be mistaken for a period, a very light period. And that's what we call implantation bleeding. I think that's also another another point that language might be different. The language your doctor uses might be different to the language that a woman might use because I find that women call all, all bleeding a period. They just call it period when they see blood from the vagina. And a doctor calls it a period if it's the result of an ovulation and a cycle where there hasn't been a conception and the lining sheds to make way for the next cycle. That's what a doctor calls a period. So some, not all bleeding is a period. I think that's probably an important point to clarify. So implantation bleeding is normal, natural and not a bad thing or a worry. I mean, some people could take it as a good sign that something's happening. The embryo is trying to implant. I think the bleeding that scares people is when it's the potential of a miscarriage. Yeah. So that's when you bleed after a diagnosis of a pregnancy. So we know that there's a pregnancy there and then bleeding happens. The main reason for this that is not a miscarriage is subchorionic hematoma. And subchorionic hematoma, sometimes it's called subchorionic hemorrhage because medicine likes to make big scary words that people can freak out about. Subchorionic hematoma is when underneath where the placenta is forming, there's a bit of a bruise. And again, it's the same principle as implantation bleeding in that the placenta is trying to develop and get a maternal blood supply and a little blood vessel has burst and there's been a big bruise or a little bruise underneath the placenta. Now, this can be a threatened miscarriage because if a hematoma was to get bigger and bigger and bigger, it could result in the placenta separating and losing its blood supply altogether. Most of the time when we see a subchorionic hematoma on an ultrasound, and that can be a cause of bleeding around the six-week mark often, often it resolves. Often it's kind of self-contained. So it might cause some bleeding, which might be initially fresh red and then settle down to more dark brown and ultimately it resolves and the pregnancy goes on and it doesn't cause a problem except for causing the mother anxiety and stress. Mother or gestational parent I should say. One, re- one reason that you can have bleeding is a miscarriage and a miscarriage is when a pregnancy has established but that pregnancy can't continue. There are a variety of reasons for miscarriage and there are some people who unfortunately have suffered recurrent miscarriage for reasons of having an underlying condition but most important it is to say that miscarriage is extremely common and that most mothers who've had a successful pregnancy have also suffered a miscarriage and the same mothers who suffer miscarriages go on to have healthy pregnancies so it's not like there's one group who have miscarriages and one group who have babies it's often different chapters of the same story and A pregnancy can miscarry for multiple reasons, but the most common reasons are fetal reasons because of the baby, 
and most commonly the body's doing everything right and helping you get over a pregnancy that was doomed to fail and by letting go of that pregnancy it's doing the right thing. The most common cause of miscarriage is the baby making a mistake and development arresting and that can be a mistake that's random with normal DNA or it may be a chromosome error or DNA error Uh, related often to advancing parental age but also can happen at any age and out of all the miscarriages we see about half of them are because of a chromosomal error and the other half are because of a random mistake and only a very small fraction of miscarriages are actually because of an underlying maternal problem but there are some conditions that can cause miscarriage and an example of that is for example antiphospholipid syndrome which is an autoimmune condition on the same spectrum as lupus, which can predispose to recurrent miscarriage and can be treated. So one of the reasons you might be bleeding is if you are having a miscarriage. Not every miscarriage presents with bleeding. So sometimes you have a miscarriage and you you think nothing's the matter and you go along for an ultrasound and the ultrasound shows the baby stopped growing or there's no heartbeat. That's what we call a missed miscarriage. It's one of these problems that's always devastating and then you know sometimes we... We have to talk about interventions and I believe we've done further episodes on on miscarriage and the management of miscarriage in the past. So I direct all of our listeners back to our back catalogue to hear more about what we do and what we can do to help a woman move on from a miscarriage. Another important pregnancy type that we should talk about that can cause bleeding in early pregnancy is actually ectopic pregnancy. We have done an episode on ectopic pregnancies and we'll link to that. But you just want to give us a quick overview about how they happen, why they happen and the treatment? So an ectopic pregnancy is basically a pregnancy somewhere else than in the uterus. And there are different kinds of ectopic pregnancies, but the most common is in the fallopian tube. What happens when an embryo starts to make a baby is egg is released from the ovary sperm, enters the female genital tract and they meet in the fallopian tube and then the embryo develops as it travels down the fallopian tube and an ectopic in a natural conception or an IUI conception can happen if the embryo doesn't make it all the way to the uterus by the time implantation happens and it implants in the fallopian tube. That can be for various reasons usually it's just a timing problem but it also can be if the environment of the uterus is unsuitable for implantation it might be because you've got some inflammatory changes inside the uterus and so the embryo is a healthy embryo looking for somewhere it can survive and it can't survive in the uterus so it wanders into a fallopian tube and from that methodology it can actually happen from IVF as well so you can put an embryo back in the uterus embryos are very clever and if the environment of the uterus is not suitable for implantation that embryo might go wandering looking for an environment where it can implant Unfortunately, a fallopian tube is not a place where a pregnancy can develop uh, safely to term. It's a narrow tube. It's got a thin wall that's not made of muscle that can expand. And so ultimately, if a pregnancy resides in a fallopian tube, the natural history of that is that the fallopian tube will burst and the woman will bleed terribly. And in the past, before modern medicine, Uh, It used to be a relatively common cause of maternal death in early pregnancy. So quite serious. So you can bleed a lot from a fallopian tube because it's a very vascular structure. And when it bursts, it's an emergency. And we deal with it through, when when it bursts in an emergency, we deal with it through laparoscopic surgery to remove the fallopian tube. Or if it's a dire emergency, it might even be open surgery to remove the fallopian tube because you can do that a lot faster. Kind of flashing sirens 
you know, mother at risk situation. But if a ectopic is picked up early, there are other ways of treating it. One example is giving some um, chemical therapy to resolve the ectopic that's called methotrexate. Not my favorite medication. I probably went through that in the, in the ectopic episode of Knocked Up because it's a toxic medication. It's like a form of chemotherapy. You have to wait many months after giving it before you can try again. A lot of women would prefer to remove the tube. And if the tube's had a pregnancy in it, it can be damaged and you're at risk of a future ectopic. Women who've had an ectopic are at higher risk of having another ectopic. So sometimes removing the tube is the better option, but I always discuss all the available options with patients when I see them clinically and, and give the patient a choice as to what they prefer, if that is reasonable to be, if there are two options that are that are clinically reasonable, it becomes a matter of patient preference. But yeah, bleeding, bleeding in, in early pregnancy, you know, you always have to exclude an ectopic. So it's really important to have an ultrasound scan and to look at the fallopian tubes well, I recommend a high definition ultrasound scan. You know, we, we can do ultrasound scans by the bedside in, in the rooms, um, but I do send my patients in early pregnancy for a high-definition ultrasound scan if I'm worried about an ectopic because it's just a much clearer image and, and a better view of the fallopian tubes. So we need to cite the pregnancy. We need to know where the pregnancy is if there's early pregnancy bleeding. And we also do the ultrasound for maternal feedback um, to let them know what's happening. It's important to understand that if the pregnancy hormone level is less than 1,000, we can't see anything on ultrasound. It's too early to see an ectopic. It's too early to see an intrauterine pregnancy. So if you've got bleeding around the four-week mark, ultrasound's really unhelpful. And so what we do is we watch the level of pregnancy hormone and look for a pattern of rise. And in that very early stage of pregnancy, we like to see the HCG level, the beta HCG level double in quantity about every 48 hours and that's quite reassuring that everything's going well. If it goes slowly or if it's an atypical pattern of rise, we have a higher index of suspicion for ectopic pregnancy and look carefully for that. It doesn't always mean that that will happen but it's kind of something that makes us prick our ears up and, and have a really high index of suspicion. I guess it's important also if women have bleeding later in pregnancy just to explain that you don't need to do HCG levels necessarily to see that doubling anymore. That it's only a phenomenon of early pregnancy that that happens. Sometimes you, you do an HCG level more so to document where you're at now so that if it falls, you've got a reference point as to where it was. But seeing it double is not as important from, from later on because it, it doesn't just keep doubling and doubling and doubling. I guess it's also important to say, well, what do you do in, if you have early pregnancy bleeding? What, what, what do you do and what can you do? If you do have bleeding in early pregnancy, what should you do? There are some contexts with bleeding in early pregnancy where we might use progesterone therapy. One context would be an IVF context because we know in IVF cycles that you need extra progesterone because of the hormonal tasks that we ask the uterus to do in terms of implantation and the ovarian hormone spectrum. The truth is that in a stimulated IVF cycle, the lining of the uterus is imperfect. And nature is much cleverer than we are. And in a natural cycle, you have one follicle which makes the perfect dose of estrogen to create a lovely natural lining. And that lining thickens over time as that estrogen rises gently. And then ovulation creates, again, a progesterone rise that is gradual and ongoing and creates a receptive lining. 
In a stimulated IVF cycle context, we ask your ovaries to make lots and lots of follicles and your estrogen level rises not only much more quickly than it would in a natural cycle, but it also rises with a higher amplitude. And the lining of the uterus grows in a disordered fashion compared to a natural cycle. When we put an embryo back in a stimulated cycle, it's a compromise. And some people do argue, and actually there's a growing body of evidence to argue, that it might be better to freeze the embryo and put it back in a natural cycle. That's something I'm looking into in my practice to do more and more as this growing body of evidence increases because we're learning that, for example, in artificially and medically supported cycles where people do get pregnant, there are some increased risks, like an increased risk of preeclampsia, for example, or an increased risk of a baby being born with a lower birth weight. So we're still learning in IVF and we are you know, kind of open to changing our practice to take on these learnings for the benefits of our patients. It's important to understand that when you do put a, an embryo back in a stimulated cycle, it is, it is a bit of a compromise and sometimes the progesterone production of the ovary that's been stimulated with lots of hormones and poked by a needle to collect your eggs, um, you know, the hormone response to the pregnancy may not be perfect either. And so sometimes some people need more progesterone. Some people's natural cycle needs more progesterone. Some natural cycles also need more progesterone. And I'm a big fan of augmenting a natural cycle with more progesterone. Because when you think about it, why not? You know, we want the corpus luteum to make the ideal amount of progesterone. It's like saying you want an orange to make the ideal amount of juice. And you know, if you juice six oranges, they won't all make exactly the same amount of juice. You know, some corpus lutea, corpora lutea make more progesterone, they're better at it. Just like you can have some oranges that are juicier. And one way that you can ensure that your beautiful embryo goes back to the optimal luteal phase is to give a bit of progesterone. And sometimes progesterone is a very calming hormone to the uterus and if there's a bit of bleeding there, calming the muscle, calming the lining, helps that bleeding to settle down. And that's something that we can do as a doctor if somebody has bleeding in early pregnancy. So my patients who might have had bleeding in early pregnancy you know, would most likely have been counselled by me to try some progesterone therapy. And that's often given in the form of a vaginal therapy. It could be a capulet or it could be a cream. Sometimes if we need it desperately and we need it to get into your system fast, it'll be in the form of an injection. There's another point, I guess, that we should make about early pregnancy bleeding. And that is, I would love to have more power over it than I do. There's something about pregnancy that after you put the embryo back, and give it a chance, it's got to do everything right. It's got to form a placenta. It's got to form a blood supply. It's got to develop perfectly into a little human. And the most difficult thing, you know, as an IVF doctor who loves to control everything <laughs> that I have to accept and that my patients also have to accept is that they are out of control. That pregnancy is autonomous. It's running on its own vibe. It has to do everything right by itself. And no matter how much you wish it, hope for it, want it to do everything right, you can't force it or make it or even influence it to do everything right. All we can do is influence the conditions of the mother. We can optimise our health as best we can pre-conception and that's why you know, at Women's Health Melbourne I work with this amazing holistic team all dedicated to creating the best quality egg, the best quality sperm, the best quality environment for conception and to support women through this very difficult phase of pregnancy where we actually can't influence it further than that. 
if you do all your all your best efforts and all your work with preconception care, you get a pregnancy. You know, the the most difficult time sometimes can be up until that heartbeat scan because it's really not in your power to influence it one way or the other. Um, All we can do is control maternal factors as best we can and just, I guess, trust in nature that so many babies do do everything right. It's a miracle. Definitely. I think the more we hear about everything that possibly could go wrong, you appreciate the miraculous nature of pregnancy even more. Given that early early pregnancy bleeding is not uncommon, how do you know when you should go to emergency? You should go to emergency if you're worried that you are in danger, imminent danger. Because if you're bleeding heavily, for example, uh, and you're worried, or particularly if you're in pain, if you have serious pain, uh, then you shouldn't just sit at home with that. You need to go to emergency. On the other side of the coin, if you have a little bit of bleeding, not much, just a little bit, maybe on a pad or a liner. If you are in an IVF cycle and you have some progesterone at home, my advice would be take an extra dose and call me in the morning. Call the clinic and we'll bring you in for a blood test to check your progesterone level and your pregnancy hormone level and potentially organise an ultrasound scan and take it from there. Because a lot of the time it will be bleeding that self-resolves. If it is a miscarriage then we need to figure out what's happening for you. And if it is an ongoing pregnancy, we need to support you. And that's both physical support, which we can do, and also emotional support while we wait to see if the pregnancy will be a successful ongoing pregnancy. I've heard that blood group can affect pregnancy. Would that be a factor here? So we've, we've all heard of blood groups. And you might know if you're an O or an A or an AB or a B type of blood group but you'll also be given when you have your blood typed a positive or a negative so you might be a negative or you might be a positive and what that positive and negative is talking about is something called the rhesus factor having a negative rhesus factor means you don't have a rhesus antigen which is a little protein stuck to the outside of your red blood cells having a positive blood group means that you have either one dose or two doses of that rhesus factor. So you might have a positive antigen that you inherited from your mum and one from your dad. Or even if you just have one from your mum or your dad and the other one doesn't give you an antigen, you're still positive. So having even either one copy or two copies of the rhesus antigen makes you RH or rhesus positive in your blood group. You don't have to remember that. Just remember if your blood group is positive or negative. If you have a negative blood group, and your partner has a positive blood group, that means your baby may have a positive blood group. Because we can't tell by the blood typing if your partner has one copy or two copies of that rhesus antigen. If they have only one copy, 50% of your kids will have a positive blood group and 50% of your kids like you will have a negative blood group. If your partner has two copies, then all of your kids are gonna have a positive blood group because they're gonna get at least one copy from your partner even though you don't give them a copy. So all of your kids will have a positive blood group. It is possible for a mother or a surrogate carrying a baby with a positive blood group when they themselves have a negative blood group to falsely recognise that baby's blood as a foreign invading threat to their immune system. And it's possible to mount an immune attack on the baby's blood cell, the red blood cells, making what we call antibodies, 
which are immune proteins that can cross the placenta and attack the baby. So that, as you can imagine, is a terrible thing and we don't want it to happen. We don't want the immune system to form a memory of that kind of misinterpretation of risk. So we don't want the immune system to be sensitized against a positive blood group. If all your babies are going to have potentially a positive blood group, if you're a mother with a negative blood group. So we have developed in medicine an amazing life hack to protect a mother against developing this kind of autoimmune reaction against the baby's blood. And it's called anti-D. It is working on a phenomenon that we call passive immunization or passive immunity, where we give some antibody to the mother when she has some bleeding in pregnancy so that she can't protect her against having a reaction against the baby's blood. Because the fact that there's that antibody around that we give as a drug, it tells the immune system, hey, chill out, calm down, we're onto it. You don't have to mount a response. And so the immune system doesn't mount a response and it doesn't form a memory of a response that will be impactful of a future pregnancy. We want to keep the immune system of someone with a negative blood group completely naive to the presence of the D antigen. Why does it happen when you bleed? Well, we talked a bit about subcoronic hematoma and we talked a bit about bleeding it with implantation. The blood from the placenta and the maternal interface, they form like a wall where nutrients and waste products diffuse across. They kind of p- pass through without actually the blood of the baby mixing with the blood of the mother. It's actually a completely separate circuit that have an interface, but they shouldn't actually mix What we worry about when you have bleeding in early pregnancy is that maybe at that edge where there was a bit of a hemorrhage, maybe the baby's origin blood mixed with the mother's origin blood as a sensitizing event for the mother's immune system. So that's when you need to cover for anti-D and you also cover for anti-D if you've got a negative blood group and there's a chance your baby could have a positive blood group. You do it routinely throughout pregnancy a few times. So women who've been through a pregnancy with a negative blood group in that circumstance will remember they had to have an injection every few months to cover for that situation in case there was an undiagnosed mixing of baby blood with mum's blood throughout the pregnancy. And also if there's any interventions that could provoke a mixing. So for example, when you have something like an invasive sampling of the placenta called a CVS or an amniocentesis to check of a genetic concern of the baby, then you would be given anti-D around that event. And of course, giving birth is an opportunity as well. So after you give birth, you'll be given anti-D. So that's important. So women who have bleeding in early pregnancy, we consider the gestational age that it happens at and we consider whether they need anti-D or not. And then we also consider the dose of anti-D that we give because later in pregnancy, we give a higher dose. Early in pregnancy, we give a lower dose. When I was an obstetrics and gynae registrar, many moons ago now, we used to give and we learned to give anti-D for everyone who presented with early pregnancy bleeding. Nowadays, um, a lot of guidelines say you don't have to until 12 weeks. So it really depends. Sometimes practitioners decide to do so to be on the safe side and there'll be guidelines that differ from hospital to hospital sometimes. So it's sometimes possible to be told different things from different sources. I think the best thing to do is... I believe everyone who has bleeding in early pregnancy should have an assessment by a doctor, whether that's your GP, obstetrician or fertility specialist, and have individualised advice depending on the circumstance. We have 72 hours from when the bleeding happens to give anti-D if it's needed. So if it happens at home and you can't see someone until the morning, that's okay. Thank you, Valia. 
really insightful as always. Oh, you're really welcome. I, I think this topic is overdue because it is such a common one. The most important, I think, take-home message is that many people will bleed in early pregnancy and everything will be all right. It's important not to panic. If miscarriage is inevitable, then there's nothing you can do about it. And otherwise, see a doctor as soon as you can and have an individualised, personalised assessment. I think that's key, is having personalised assessment. Wonderful. Thank you. To support Knocked Up, leave us a review or recommend to a friend. Join us on Instagram at Knocked Up Podcast and join Raylia at Dr Raylia Lou. And email us your questions to podcast at womenshealthmelbourne.com.au.